My name is Heidi and I love stories. Funny stories and sad stories and what on earth just happened stories. As it turns out, the Bible is full of them. And after two decades in Sunday school, plus a master's in English, I'm here to tell them to you. Get ready. This is Messy Scripture. Solomon is definitely, definitely king. King David has died, and since Solomon was coronated before David's death, he is absolutely, undoubtedly the king. The difficulty for him is that his throne was established by God, which is definitely a huge bonus, but it wasn't established by the popular choice of the people. They would have chosen Ajaniah. In fact, Joab, the general for David, and Abathar, the high priest, both sided with Ajaniah before, you know, Solomon came in and got sneaky coronated in public. Ajaniah has a strategy for maybe perhaps winning the people's vote back. Not that they had a vote, but you get where I'm going with this. He goes to Bathsheba, Solomon's mom, and asks her to ask Solomon if he, Ajaniah, can marry Abishag, the really, really, really pretty girl who had been sleeping with King David, and I mean that literally sleeping with, not having sexy time with. Sleeping next to keeping warm with her hot young body heat. This would be a serious slap in the face to Solomon's rule because, you know, not all of Israel would necessarily know that David hadn't had sex with her. And also, like, this is obviously a slap in the face. So, Ajaniah does convince Bathsheba to ask Solomon if he, Ajaniah, can marry Abishag, but it kind of backfires because Solomon immediately has Ajaniah put to death. He has Abathar expelled, but doesn't kill him because Abathar was a help to King David, and Abathar was a descendant of Eli, who we met way, way back when Samuel was still a baby. Remember? Eli, the priest? Well, this is one of his descendants, and finally, God's prophecy that there would no longer be a high priesthood descended from Eli comes true because Abathar is kicked out of the job. And then Joab hears that Solomon is on the warpath against Adjaniah, justifiably so, and runs and grabs the horns of the altar. Solomon's men come back and report to him like, hey, so Joab is kind of grabbing the horns of the altar. Like, what are we going to do? We can't kill him. And Solomon's like, like hell you can't. Solomon gives two reasons for killing Joab. And by two reasons, I mean two people that Joab had previously killed. Abner. You might remember Abner as the guy who was Saul's general who became David's general for like five minutes before Joab killed him for no good reason. Yeah, that one. And then Amasa, who was a commander of the army of Judah. So now Joab's dead. Abathar's out of the priesthood, Zadok is in the priesthood, and Jehoda's son, Benaniah, is now general. The one last person on Solomon's establish his kingdom list is Shimei, the dum-dum who was just mean to David and shouting curses at him while he was on the run from Absalom. Solomon tells Shimei that he is allowed to live, but he is basically reverse banished. He can only live inside the city of Jerusalem. And Shimei's like, that's fair. Then three years later, he leaves and then he gets put to death because, you know, he was told not to do that. He had an oath. And thus, Solomon is now not only definitely king, but firmly established as king. He has no political enemies within the house of David. He's king. And as such, he sees it as his responsibility to be a good king, which is really nice. That's not always the case. Solomon walked with God just like his father David had and went to Gibeon and offered a ton of sacrifices, like a thousand cattle ton of sacrifices. He wanted God's attention because he wanted God's affection. He also wanted God's attention in the sense of like, God, please pay attention to my kingship, like, help me do this good. And God comes to Solomon in a dream and asks him what he would like. God is going to give Solomon anything he wants. And Solomon answers that he feels underqualified 
and he would like to be wise. He would like to be a good king. And to do that, he's going to need wisdom. And God replies, overjoyed. He tells Solomon that he could have asked for anything. He could have asked for women or riches or a long life. But because he asked for wisdom, he's going to get riches and a long life. He's going to have everything he could want. And God is going to establish his kingdom in peace. What that means is, essentially, Solomon's not going to have wars to deal with. There was some border stuff, you know, like you do. But overall, Solomon's kingdom and kingship are going to be peaceful. He's overwhelmed with the gift that God has given him and worships him and then awakens and realizes that all of it was a dream. Now, it's quite possible that Solomon might have thought that it was only a dream, that he didn't really have this conversation, but he is acting as though he did, as though God has really visited him. And it turns out he has. Solomon had good occasion to demonstrate his wisdom because shortly after he returned to Jerusalem, two prostitutes come before him with one baby between them. And this is what they're claiming. They're both claiming that the living baby is theirs. One of them rolled over in the night and suffocated their baby. The one is claiming that hers is the living child. One is claiming that like, no, mine is the living child. You stole him from beside me. That's definitely my kid. And King Solomon listens to them go back and forth. And finally, he's like, I have a great solution. I will cut the baby in half and give each of you half of the child and then you'll both have a baby. And the women look at him and look at each other and the one says, fine, you're the king, do what you feel like. And the other says, absolutely not. No, no, no. Give the baby to her. It's her child. Absolutely. Do not. Do not do this, King Solomon. And he says, okay, give the baby to the one who didn't want me to kill him. It's actually her child because she actually has skin in the game and wants the child to survive. And when everybody heard about this, when everybody heard that Solomon actually put some wisdom and some care behind judging a feud between prostitutes, Israel was impressed. During Solomon's reign, it's the golden age. The people of Israel are plentiful. There is food and money and wine and territory Solomon's territory is bigger than it has ever been, certainly bigger than it was under his father, David. And Solomon is truly, truly wise. Word of his wisdom spreads internationally. People from other kingdoms come to hear him and talk to him and to make sure that he really lives up to his reputation. And without fail, he does. He is by far the richest king that ever ruled over Israel or Judah, and certainly over Israel and Judah. Shorter list. There's only three of them. We'll get to that later. But eventually, Hiram, king of Tyre, sends servants to Solomon to congratulate him on taking the throne because Hiram had been close with David. And he asks Solomon if there's anything that, that he needs. And Solomon's like, well, you know that my father, a war man, could not build the temple before God, even though it was his life's dream. And so I am taking over that project. And so Hiram, king of Tyre, helps Solomon build God's temple. The temple site was surprisingly quiet. Solomon made sure that all of his laborers worked off-site on carving the stones and building the wooden bits so that everything was only assembled on site. It was a worshipful place even in its construction. Gold overlaid on cedar, rich jewels, everything was the best of the best that the world had to offer. This was the temple that Solomon was giving to God. And on his way to building it, God also appeared before Solomon and was like, if you continue to walk in the ways of your father, David, I will continue to walk with you all the days of your life. And God blessed the project, kind of gave Solomon the go ahead, but reminded him 
that the point of the temple was not to have a shiny building on a hill. The point of the temple was to build something that even a little bit was analogous to the glory of God, which is what Solomon actually wanted to be in the temple more than anything else. Finally, the day of the dedication came and Solomon prayed a prayer that God would always forgive That's the heart of Solomon's prayer, and it is absolutely beautiful. If you're interested in reading the entire prayer, it can be found in 1 Kings 8. Solomon offers thousands of sacrifices. In fact, the Bible doesn't even bother to count them. It's just like, he sacrificed so many animals. The temple is built, and at the end of Solomon's prayer and sacrifices, God's presence rushes into the temple in a visible, palpable way, unlike anything seen since Mount Sinai. The golden age truly has come not only because Israel is at peace and is rich and has territory, it has God. God is in the temple. Solomon accomplished a lot during his lifetime. He built an incredible palace for himself after he finished the temple. He was ridiculously wealthy and, this is kind of cool, he impressed someone called the Queen of Sheba. She heard that Solomon was as impressive as he was and so she came all the way from her homeland to make sure that he lived up to his reputation. And lo and behold, after she questioned him and questioned him and questioned him, he did. We also know what kind of writer Solomon was because he wrote three books that still exist in the Bible, or at least mostly wrote them. The first is the book of Proverbs, which he was the primary writer for, although there are other Proverbs contained within that book. Basically, it's the book of Hebrew and Jewish wisdom. It is incredible. And a lot of these Proverbs you've probably heard of before, even if you're not a religious person, because the wisdom contained therein is wisdom. And true wisdom isn't bound by time or by religion. It's reality. Like, in real life, your life will be better if you follow God. In real life, if you hang out with idiots, you'll become an idiot. Like, it's pretty straightforward. He wrote some psalms, and then he also wrote what's called the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. Occasionally, you'll hear this book portrayed as like an allegory for God's relationship to people. I find that interpretation kind of gross. It's a book about sex. It's a book about two people having sex. It's really, really, really well done, but it's definitely a book about sex. And Solomon knew sex because he had hundreds of wives and hundreds of concubines, specifically 700 wives 300 concubines. This man knew sex. And it was actually his wives that turned his heart away from following God exclusively. To keep his wives happy, he would build little altars for them to worship at, and he was no longer exclusively worshiping God. And so God gets pissed. And he tells Solomon flat out that he's not going to just establish his kingdom forever the way that he had planned because Solomon didn't keep up his end of the bargain. Now Israel has enemies and adversaries and there are some border stuff and Solomon actually has to defend his kingdom. And now a young man named Jeroboam comes onto the scene. This story might sound remarkably familiar. It's almost as though God is trying to send a message through history about how things go. So Jeroboam comes on and he's super industrious and he's a servant of Solomon. So Solomon puts him in charge of all the forced labor of the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim. Once Jeroboam's in charge, Ahijah the prophet comes and dresses himself in a new garment, takes Jeroboam out into the country and tears the garment into 12 pieces. He's like, here's the thing. Solomon's kingdom is not going to be established as is forever because God is unhappy that Solomon is following the Ashtoreths and the Baals and all the other problematic gods that are all around us that aren't real gods. So here's the deal. He's going to take most of the kingdom 
away from Solomon, but not during Solomon's life. And he's going to raise you up. And if you follow God, God will establish your kingdom. It's great. And when Solomon hears about this, he wants to kill Jeroboam. Does this sound familiar yet? But Jeroboam escapes. When Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam and Jeroboam, his former servant, now enemy, are going to feud for the kingdom and it is going to be torn in two, but not two even pieces. The kingdom of Israel will be established under Jeroboam and it will be ten tribes. The only two tribes that will remain with the house of David, i.e. King Rehoboam, will be the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah. So the tribe that King Saul came from and the tribe that King David came from. Also the Levites that were around. We're going to get to the nitty-gritty of that next episode, but I'd like to wrap up by mentioning one last thing that King Solomon wrote. It's the book of Ecclesiastes, and this is the book that contains the words meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. It is also the book that contains words that you hear at funerals and see lots of other places. To everything there is a season, a time to be born, and a time to die. When Solomon's time came to die, he had reigned in Israel for 40 years, and I'll just tell you right now, Israel's never going to get up to the level that it was at while Solomon was king. But we're going to find out exactly what does happen on the next episode of Messy Scripture. Messy Scripture.